Thank you all for being here tonight. What a blessing. I appreciate that so much. I came in at a quarter till, because I don't like coming in that late. came in at a quarter till, looked around, there was nobody here, it seemed like. Nobody. So this is nice to see. Thank you for all coming late. I appreciate that. We had a, 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 a wonderful afternoon class. It was delightful. My kids, Katie, Brad, and my grandson, Daniel, flew in last night, made it safely. Praise the Lord, and thank you for your prayers. We prayed that uh, the flight, they had uh, 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 two legs to get here from, uh, from South Carolina, and uh, Daniel is uh, at that age where he doesn't like to be hemmed in. And so we were a little nervous because the trip from, from their home to the airport was nonstop screaming in his car seat. Now we're going to be going on to the airplane twice to get all the way from there to here. But he was a doll, they said. He was perfect on the planes and uh, did, did just great. Had so much to look at and so many people to talk to and, and have a good time. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for your prayers. They came in last night and uh, Brad's got a, a nasty uh, sinus infection and uh, uh, Daniel's got a little bit of a fever he's messing with, but he's teething significantly and so those two tend to go hand in hand but uh, looking forward to spending some time with them and it's just just great having family home with us at this time we're in the book of Genesis and I am enjoying my study in Genesis so thank you thank you for allowing me the privilege of studying Genesis it's been great for me and my estimation of God has just exploded during this time we know that God is big we know God's powerful and we say God is all-powerful. But do we really mean that? Because if we truly believe that God was all-powerful, then why in the world would we ever worry? <laughs> he's all-powerful. No matter what the need, he's, he's bigger. He's powerful to take care of that need. And here we read about God speaking the worlds into existence. And then the little phrase that I think is almost, almost humorous, after he's made everything, just about, he, he says, and he made the stars also. So these massive, massive stars that dwarf our sun in comparison. He just made the stars. No big deal. Because what his focus was, was you, man. That was his focus. And so you can consider all these incredible, beautiful stars and planets that, that he made. What is impressive is he made a planet to sustain life, and it's a beautiful planet, and he did so for you. I, I, I just love that. We're going to be beginning in uh, Genesis 2 and verse 10 tonight, and go from there. We got up to the river, the parts. So I'll read verse 10, then I'll pray, and then we'll take off running. Chapter 2, verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, from thence it was parted and became into four heads. Now, there's a lot we do not know about the Garden of Eden. It must have been an incredibly lush place. And it's a place that God uh, singled off, if you will, for Adam and, and then for Eve to be a place of blessing for them. But remember, the rest of the world is incredible. His, his, his world that he's made, the earth that he's made is, is gorgeous. So this garden that he singled off must have been beyond belief. And the fruits that were there that they could partake of, and just everything was, was just wonderful. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So let's pray and ask God's direction. Dear Lord, thank you for your love and blessing. Thank you for this time of year. Thank you for your word. 
and thank you for this most amazing foundational book, the book of Genesis. And Lord, as we do struggle with questions in our lives, would you remind us to run back to Genesis and find answers to so many of life's questions? Lead us and guide us, Spirit of God, I pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In your mind's eye, just try to place yourself dead center in the garden. And just start slowly, in your mind's eye, looking around at all these incredible trees. They're, they're beautiful. They're trees, the likes of which you have never seen. You've never seen trees in such glory and splendor, such perfection. Now, though you have seen some of the types of trees, you have not seen them as perfect as they were in the garden. You, 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 you take just a moment here. Wow. Would you, would you smell it? Wow. Which tree is, well, that must be the lemon tree. Wow. Um, there, there's the apple tree. The fragrance in that garden must have been incredible. God made that. And the reason God made that was for man. It says uh, in your, the very first blank, a river parted four ways. Four ways. So he made a, he made a, a garden, and then he made f uh, a, a, a fountainhead to separate four different ways. Now, we're not told this, but very likely they came out and they went four different directions. So the, the, the rivers came out four different directions from this. I did not print off what I meant to show you tonight, but I'll try to bring that next time. I've got a picture of the globe with what some artists think the world might have looked like originally. And that is one solid land mass. One solid land mass, much of the earth covered with water, but one solid land mass. And uh, let me see here. And um, it's been called Pangaea. P-A-N-G-A-E-A. -E -A. One solid landmass. And in the picture I have, they've taken little dotted lines. And on this solid landmass, they have drawn little dotted lines for each continent, though they're all in one. Now, if I'm told this, if you were to take each of the continents and just cut them out, you could put them together like you would a puzzle, and they fit into one, one co combined area there. So the supposition is, come the flood, this flood that covered the earth and did such incredible changes to the earth structure. It's likely that the, one of the results of the flood was the, the, the continents beginning to separate. And so I say all that to say, we really don't know today where these rivers are. Because if that indeed is what happened, then after the flood, the, the, the earth shifted greatly then it's going to be difficult to know today what it looked like back then. I will say, number one, unclear locations today. From the Garden of Eden, a fountainhead split into four major waterways. Again, in your mind, see this spring coming up out of the, wa up out of the, up out of the ground, and it being a powerful spring, and then it being diverted four different ways. Only two of those rivers likely correspond to the pre-flood account in the Garden. The first one is the Hiddekel, what we would say today is the Tigris, and the second is the Euphrates. So the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are two of the ones that we believe very likely 
were two of the four that were there in the Garden of Eden. Two others, the Pison and the Gihon, may be the Ganges and the Nile. But in the current landmass structure, there's no way they could spring from the same source. They're not close enough to each other to have kind of the same source unless you move continents around. Then they could have. The flood was likely responsible for either the destruction of the first two rivers or for an altering of the land masses. In either case, we don't know. The Tigris and Euphrates may or may not be in the same locations or flow the same as they did in the Garden of Eden. The flood would have greatly altered the face of the earth. If you're looking at a map, find the country of Iraq, and these two rivers uh, go right through that country. Psalm 137.1, which leads me to read this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. The captivity, the Jews and Babylon. On either side of them are these rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates. By the rivers, they sat down and they wept. Why? Because they're in captivity. Next, number two, the four Edenic rivers. First of all is the Pison, letter A, verse 11. The name of the first is Pison, that which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is delium and the onyx stone. Now, apart from what we know in the scriptures, there's not much we know about these particular areas in which these rivers go. And so there's not a lot of research I found on these. Letter B is the Gihon, G-I-H-O-N. Verse 13, and the name of the second river is Gihon. I'm sure there's other ways to pronounce that. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. Letter C is the Hiddekel. And the name of the third river is Hiddekel, and that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, likely known as the Tigris River today. And then letter D is the Euphrates. The end of verse 14, and the fourth river is Euphrates. So other than knowing what the Bible says about these rivers and the area through which they flow, we're a little, uh, a little naive. Number three, God's commandment to man. God's commandment to man. Remember, we're in the very beginning of creation, and God is about to give a commandment to man. Letter A, man's commission in the garden. His commission, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. There's his commission. He put him in the garden. Adam, I'm putting you in this garden. What a rough place to be. All these incredible fruits. At any time, day or night, he could walk over and pick out one of the most incredibly luscious fruits and eat them. It was a glorious place for him to work, which is number one. Man was made to work. The word dress in this verse literally means work. The word suggests toil, labor, and service. And I found this interesting. For as long as I've known, men have complained about work. Oh, man, i got to go to work today. And then ladies started complaining about work. Oh, i got to go to work today. <laughs> work becoming the evil thing. Well, I found out in this book of Genesis, this particular work used, or word used, dress, has a link in its etymology. 
its, its word structure has a link to being in bondage or being a bond slave. God said, Adam, you're going to go into the garden, and you're going to be a servant, a slave, if you will, as you work in the garden. You say, well, this work thing, that's a result of the curse. Well, no. No, work is not a part of the curse. Work is part of God's initial commission to man. God said, Adam, the only way that you're going to be satisfied in life is to learn to work. Which is number two. Number two, work leads to man's happiness. Seems counterintuitive, but Psalm 128, verse 2 says, For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. You'll be happy if you're laboring, he says. Some of the most unhappy people are those with no work and no responsibilities. Our urban societies have stripped our youth of learning the importance of hard work. Even when I grew up, so many, so many decades ago, though I, had, though I grew up in a small town, a town of 1,100 people or so on a good day, lots of, uh, it was in a farming community, a lot of pig farms around. I got to work out there sometimes on the, on the farm. Still, still, even then, most folks lived in urban areas. They lived in towns. They lived in cities. And so growing up, though I had the privilege of working out there once in a while, I still grew up, I still grew up in, in town. But, but I had the freedoms that kids don't have today. I had the freedom of being outside playing all the time. I, it didn't matter if it got dark. The, the neighbors would holler at my folks and tell, tell them where I was. And so as long as I was home at a decent hour, you know, there's no problem. You didn't have to worry about it back then. Now, things, have, things are a little different now. Work leads to man's happiness. If you're not working, you're not satisfied. If you're not doing something, physically, mentally, doing something to be productive, you're not satisfied. Number three, the garden was made to need man's labor. God made it that way, which is kind of interesting when you think about it because God made this perfect garden. Perfect trees, perfect fruits, perfect fruits and vegetables. It's a garden, and everything exactly perfect. He could walk out that day and pick anything he wants. But think about it for a moment. As the days progress, after God creates it, what's going to happen to the garden? God made everything, but now what's going to happen? If it's not taken care of or dressed, it's going to become overrun. It has to be manicured. It has to be taken care of, cultivated. has to be worked. That was man's job, to work the garden. I, I found an interesting article. Remember the man Cyrus in the Bible? Anybody know anything about Cyrus? What do you know about Cyrus? Anybody? He was a Persian king. He sure was. He was a king that followed Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, the... Uh, uh, Media Persia was the world-dominating power that defeated Babylon, and Cyrus became the world leader following Nebuchadnezzar. Let me read you um, a, an article entitled, Cyrus, a Gardener. When Lysander, the Lacedaemonian general, brought magnificent presents to Cyrus, the younger son of Darius, who piqued himself more on his integrity and politeness than on his rank and birth, 
the prince conducted his illustrious guest through his gardens and pointed out to him their varied beauties. Lysander, struck with so fine a prospect, praised the manner in which the grounds were laid out, the neatness of the walks, the abundance of fruits, planted with an art which knew how to combine the useful with the agreeable, the beauty of the parterres and the glowing variety of flowers, exhaling odors universally throughout the delightful scene. Everything charms and transports me in this place, said Lysander to Cyrus, but what strikes me most is the exquisite, exquisite taste and elegant industry of the person who drew the plan of these gardens and gave it the fine order, wonderful disposition, and happiness of arrangement, which I cannot sufficiently admire. Cyrus replied, It was I that drew the plan and entirely marked it out, and many of the trees which you see were planted by my own hands. What? exclaimed Lysander with surprise, and viewing Cyrus from head to foot, is it possible that with those purple robes and splendid vestments, those strings of jewels and bracelets of gold, those buskins so richly embroidered, is it possible that you could play the gardener and employ your royal hands in planting trees? Does that surprise you, said Cyrus? I assure you that when my health permits, I never sit down to my table without having fatigued myself, either in military exercise, rural labor, or some other occupation. Cyrus was the king who God directed to send a remnant back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. What kind of a man did God choose to use? One who was actively exercising his dominion over the earth. I found that interesting. God had said to man, you're going to have dominion over my creation. Centuries later, God prophesied that a man named Cyrus was going to free his people and send them back to rebuild. What was special about Cyrus? Well, one thing, one thing, he had dominion over the earth that God gave him and God chose him. Letter B. Man's limitation in the garden. His limitation. When I say that little phrase, he's in the Garden of Eden, it's the very beginning of creation. He's looking around and seeing everything that God has just made. What kind of a limitation might Adam face? Anybody? Hello? <laughs> Adam, you can eat everything you want here. It's great. Except for, see that tree over there? You may not eat of that tree there. He had a limitation. Verse 16, 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely what? Die. For in the day that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. Obedience to God's command actually defined the knowledge of this tree. What was significant about this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was significant, significant was the fact that obedience to God's command is what made it unique. God said, don't touch that one. Should man fail to obey God, he would then know evil. How would he know evil? By experience. God said, no. 
and he partook. So this evening before coming over, little Daniel was crawling over, and he reached up to touch one of the light sockets, you know, the, on the wall, wall sockets. His mommy said, no! But he pulled his hand away, which is a good sign. Doesn't always happen that way. Do you know what man does? Man reaches out to touch what he shouldn't do. And God says, no. And man does this. Anyway. And you give Daniel a while, he'll learn the same thing. You learn to do it when nobody's looking. Man has convinced himself he can do it when God's not looking. He had a limitation in the garden. God's only prohibition to man was the only way man's righteousness could be tested. All right, I've made man. How can I test his righteousness? I know. I'll give him one thing he cannot do. Just one. And as long as he stays away from that, he's good and he's righteous. Ah, but if he fails, he's unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since by man came death, of course, Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, Lord Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Next, letter E, a help meet for man. A help meet for man. Man is a needy creature. Just ask any wife. Men are needy. God made man needy. And so God went to solve that need there in the garden. Number one, man's need. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. Somebody tell me what the word, the, 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 the word structure helpmeet means. What's that mean? How do you describe helpmeet? Anybody? He made the woman to be a helpmeet. Randy? Yes, perfect. Or meet for him. Right. Meet or fit for him. I looked it up. The word literally translates help or aid. So it's really simple. God made a help for Adam. Because God said, Adam, you're a mess. You, you need help. And so he made a help meet. In the choice of a wife, says Koch's commentary, a helpmeet is to be sought, a companion, a friend, listen to this, whose presence at home may be to us more than all the world beside. In other words, a wife was created to be more valuable than the whole world beside. That which is most important, more than anything else in the world, is the wife. That's how God created it. Number two, man's job. Man's job. Verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name of it. Now that may not sound like a big deal. But that's a big deal. First of all, God could have named all the animals. 
very easily. No problem for God. But instead, he chose to use man. And that process has not stopped today. God still has chosen to use man. God could do all the work himself. When it comes to sharing the gospel, God could do it all. He doesn't need us, but he chose to enlist us. So the gospel goes out through us. Here in the garden, he brought all the animals by. So he brings these animals by, and Adam says, wow, let's call that a giraffe. Brings another animal by, oh, there's a rhinoceros. One by one, or pairs possibly, he brings the animals by, and he sees them, and he names them, which is incredible. To think of the brain that Adam must have had, it was incredible. He not only named them, he remembered them. So the giraffe goes by, and a week later, the giraffe shows up. I remember you. You're a giraffe. I'd be thinking, what, what, what was your name? <laughs> it's a giraffe. All these animals he named, incredible. Recognition. Um, let's see. The first man was created perfectly. His brain was not infected by sin like ours is. It was not easily distracted by the noise of the world. Not only could he think clearly, he thought brilliantly. Adam was responsible for naming all the animals and remembering their names. Number three, man's recognition of his need. Verse 20, Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. First question is what's not mentioned? It says he brought all the cattle and the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. In naming what God's made, what did he not name? Yes, fish. Fish. I got to think about that. Why didn't he name fish? Yeah, so why didn't he, how didn't he have them name them? Okay. <laughs> What's that mean? Is it possible he didn't, couldn't see them because they're in the water? Then I got the thing in this afternoon. Well, he could have them all jump in the water. Okay, there's a dolphin. <laughs> there's a tuna. <laughs> but what about the ones that don't swim? You know, he couldn't name those because so he didn't. He was responsible for naming those. That's a supposition there. Um, he uh, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, that's one of the unique things about Adam. Likely exercise of bringing all the animals intensified the fact. He said, okay, there's husband and wife giraffe. There's husband and wife rhinoceros. There's husband and wife cow and bull. <laughs> uh, husband and wife squirrels. After naming all of the animals, he looks over here, looks over here. He's alone. I found it interesting, one of the commentaries mentioned, Adam did not start looking around for something similar to him. Like, hmm, you, know, you know that orangutan and I, you know, we've got some similarities. You know, I kind of hit it off with that monkey. We had, we had, he did not choose something similar. He realized there's nothing on the earth that compares to himself. Why? Because he was unique. God made man unique. Number four, man's rib. Now you know what's coming. Verse 21, 22. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. There are some unseen, unsaid things here that I find interesting. Um, with some kind of supernatural anesthesia, God put Adam out. He's out cold. So cold, in fact, that he could have this massive uh, procedure done, and he didn't know it. Now, similar to going over to MCR and having a surgery. They cut you open, they take out whatever, and they sew you back up. A very big significant difference is, however, when you come out of there, you've got gauze and bandage, and you're still seeping and all that here, and there's pain. No pain. No scar. As if it never happened. The only difference is now he's got more ribs on this side than this side. <laughs> he's missing a rib. Somebody asked this afternoon, does that mean that man today has less ribs than then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. One thing is for sure, we have an equal number of ribs. So if he only took one side, well, that was then just Adam because it didn't follow suit in all of his kids. Um, number five is man's partner. Man's partner. Man now has a partner. Number Letter A, called a woman. Man's partner is called a woman. Verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. First of all, who therefore initially named his partner? What's it say here? Adam did. Adam initially named his partner. In the Hebrew, woman means manness, or a feminine version of man. Or we could say a she-man. The Anglo-Saxon word where we get the word woman is a actually a contraction, and it means man with a womb. Woo-man. That's where we get the word. Woo-man. God took one of Adam's ribs and possibly, listen to this, possibly some of the flesh with that rib. Why? Because Adam said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, how did Adam know this went on? He was out cold. He wakes up out of a deep sleep. Now he's no pain. He looks over, oh, and he sees, woman, how did he know that she came out of his rib? Well, God had to tell him. God told him, Adam, she came out of your rib. Let her be commanded to leave and cleave with her, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Something funny about that verse, there was no father or mother there. They were the only humans. And they're told at the very beginning, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But we look around, Lord, <laughs> who are we talking about? <laughs> what God is doing is instituting, and he's making an institution here. This will be marriage. Before there was a father or mother, God set the parameters for marriage. Married couples should have their parents, married couples should leave their parents and cleave to one another. What's the word cleave here mean? Cling to, yeah. Literally glued together. 
glued together. Their union became the symbol for all marriages thereafter as Eve was literally part of Adam's flesh and bone. Couples should recognize God's intention for them of becoming one in all aspects, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Now it's interesting because this concept is quoted in the New Testament numbers of times. For instance, Matthew 19, 5, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Mark 10, 8, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Ephesians 5, 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Sounds to me like God is repeating this thought over and over and over to drive it home. Let her see, unashamed in their purity. Unashamed in their purity. Verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And honestly, even tonight, it's very difficult for talk about this, for us to get a proper mental picture, because we no longer live in a pure world. Society is no longer pure. Society is no longer able to talk about things that, and, and, and to do so in a pure venue. It's impossible. Things that I would have gotten the tar beat out of me if I would bring up as a kid. Topics are talked about so freely by kids in, young kids in school today. This is no big deal. I remember blurting out something, going down a hall, getting ready to go into a store with my mother, something that she had in her purse. And I, and I just happened to mention that thing that I'd seen it. And I got whaled for that. Because you just don't talk about personal things like that. It's, it's just very inappropriate. But times have changed. Unashamed in their purity. One commentator writes, they were naked, but they were not so. Their bodies were the clothing of their internal glory. And their internal glory was the clothing of their nakedness. Again, it's hard for us to comprehend this, but he's saying purity covered them. Purity covered them. And they were being viewed through eyes of purity. And as such, they were only seen purely. So, so just let that sink in for a minute, because it's so contrary to our, uh, our nature today. Sin immediately changed everything, destroying the purity and innocence that man had enjoyed from creation. Number nine. I wish we did talk about this part of it, but number nine is sin entered God's creation. Everything has been so pristine, so beautiful, so lush, so gorgeous, such an incredible relationship between man and God, walking in the garden, fellowshipping with each other, man talking to God and God talking to man. Incredible. The love that was shared between God and man and between man and his partner, his wife, indescribable. But the serpent came along. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, first of all, letter A, the subtle serpent. The subtle 
serpent. Though Satan is not identified in this passage by name, it's obvious both by his behavior here and references in other passages that he indeed is the perpetrator of man's temptation. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Revelation 20, verse 2, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. A couple things we don't know before getting into this next point. We don't know exactly, like I mentioned last week, we don't know exactly when Satan was created. It appears by the, by the concept of God saying, and everything was made. Everything was made that was made in those six days. So it appears that everything in God's universe that he made, including the angels, were created during the six days of creation. It appears that way. If that's the case, then so was Lucifer. He was created during those six days. Now, we know some amazing things happened. Lucifer fell. He got proud. He elevated himself and said, I want to be as the Most High. I want to have some say around here. Have, God, it's good for you to talk, but I want to talk too. So let's have a 50-50 deal here. I want to be as the Most High. Well, that elevation of himself, that pride, is what got, got him kicked out. And we know that. But is it possible that that happened very quickly after God looked at his finished work and said, it is good? Is it possible that soon thereafter, Satan became full of himself and fell. So now he's a fallen angel. As such, what is that fallen angel going to do? Is it also possible that his first act as a fallen angel is going to try to deceive man into sinning and turning against God? Is that possible? I say, yeah, it's all possible. It's all possible. With that in mind, let her be the, ser the serpent's captivated audience. The serpent's captivated audience. Number one, Eve showed no surprise a snake could talk. I'm so glad snakes don't talk. There is not recorded any surprise on Eve's part that the serpent could speak. Therefore, was she not surprised? Is it possible some of the animals could talk during that time? Possible. Well, we know that the serpent did, but was the serpent, which we've always assumed, was a serpent talking because the devil entered the serpent, and now it's actually the devil speaking through the serpent. But she's not surprised. But then I thought, this is all new to her. She's only been around a short time. You know, she's still learning. She's still under. She's still seeing every day. She's seeing new things. So, so a serpent can talk. This must be must be part of God's creation. No big deal. Okay? No big deal. Possible. Number two. This. Oh, by the way. So the serpent and she were having this conversation. Apparently, not afraid of the serpent. 
so sounds like the serpent, and she are eyeball to eyeball. So there, I've seen suppositions that perhaps the serpent before the fall had legs and stood up and faced. But maybe not. I'm thinking of the cobra. The cobra that goes up like this. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Number two, the serpent's obvious hatred towards God. Satan's first recorded sentence was one dripping with antagonism toward God. He implied God was trying to keep something really good away from Adam and Eve. God must, therefore, be unfair and therefore not completely good. And now we begin to see a little taste of how devious the devil can be and how gullible we can be. Now, take yourself back to that garden. In your mind's eye, see the garden. Eve and the, the serpent are now having this conversation. Yea, but, but yea, hath God said? Did he really say? Is that really what God meant when he said? Now I know that's what he said, but is that what he meant when he said it? The seed of doubt was planted. He then planted doubt in Eve's mind when he said, Yea, hath God said. In other words, is that what God really said? Satan questioned the word of God. Here's God's word. Satan questioned it, which is exactly what he does today. He questions the word. What do you mean? He doesn't do that today. Yes, he does. You ever heard this? Well, that's just your interpretation. That's, that's just your interpretation of well, yeah, because that's what it says. <laughs> it's black and white. It's literal. Well, but that's, that's how you're interpreting it. And where do you suppose we learn that? Yea, hath God really said that? In 1 Timothy 2.8, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. God desires that his children are not filled with doubt that they put their confidence in what God said, not doubting what God said. Letter C, the serpent's naive prey, P-R-E-Y. Naive prey. Number one, Eve's ill-prepared response. She gave a response that was ill-prepared, not well thought out apparently. She was not prepared for this meeting between herself and Satan. Now, even today, quite frankly, there are times where you're prepared for it. You'll hear a message, for instance, or you'll read something in the Bible, and it gives you that, 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 that it loads your guns. And so when the temptation comes, you're ready for it. And, man, you draw your guns on that from the Bible. It says, you're not going to have me, devil. The Bible says this. We're prepared for it, but she was not prepared. Any more than sometimes we're not. Verse 2, and the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Is that what God said? It's not quite, is it? That's not what, quite what God said. 
She added something there, didn't she? Uh, letter A, signs of attrition. Signs of attrition. I hate to use a big word on you. <laughs> attrition means this, the wearing away or eroding. Signs of attrition, being wearing away. Eve began by acknowledging and even defending God's words. In her defense, she added something that God had apparently not said, neither shall ye touch it. In her eagerness to defend her dignity, by trying to recall everything God had said, she added something God had not said. So I ask you a question. Is it possible Satan had already put a wedge between her spirit and God? And she began thinking that maybe Satan was right. Maybe God is a little unfair. She may have distorted God's words on purpose to add weight to Satan's accusation. You say, boy, you're going out on a, uh, on, on a uh, whatever there. <laughs> you're really taking far beyond what the Bible says. And that's right, I am. But I'm basing it upon human nature. With the understanding that Satan is incredibly deceptive. And man is incredibly gullible. Now, there's something else to consider here. Eve had never been lied to. I can't say that. And you? <laughs> yes? She got it from Adam and not God, right? Yeah. Yeah, all sorts of possibilities there. Eve had never been lied to. This was new for her. So she is just willing to accept what people say because she's willing to trust. She's very trusting. She trusts Adam. She trusted God. Now, this other person is talking to her, the snake. Why not trust the snake as well? Well, the, why would the snake say anything is not true? Everything I have heard up until this point has been true. So we see letter B, a change of focus. Satan directed Eve's eyes off of all the blessings she had. Remember, Adam said, look around, Adam. Everything you see here, you can have. Except for one thing. What did the devil do? The devil said, Eve, look at this one thing. You see this one thing God's not giving you? You deserve that. What's he keeping from you, Eve? What is God holding back from you? You deserve that. In doing so, it made her willing to disobey God. A sin, even though she had been lied to by the devil. You see, was Eve's um, eating of that fruit a sin? Yes. Why? Because God said, don't do it. She did it. Yeah, but she was lied to. But she did it. Remember? God said... Now I've heard some contrary to word to God. So she chose to believe this statement over what God said through Adam. Satan did not say, no, God said this. Satan said, is that really what God meant? Yea, hath God said? Number two, the subtle deception of the serpent. The subtle deception of the serpent, verse 4 and 5. And the serpent said to the woman, ye shall not surely die. True or false? Is that true or false? False. 
you shall not die. Well, God said you would. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he played this, letter A. Satan played his famous half-truth card. His famous half-truth card. There, were some, there was some truth to what he told Eve. Physically, she would not die right away. Also, her eyes would be opened, but she would not be as God. She would know good and evil, but she would not become as God. Number one, Satan is the father of lies. John 8, 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. Number two, the apostle Paul warned of Satan's deceit. Paul warned of Satan's deceit. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul said, I'm going to teach you some things because we're not ignorant of his devices. Now, one of the ways I believe that Paul learned Satan's devices is by reading the book of Genesis. He read the account of the serpent coming and tempting Eve. He learned, oh, wow, the devil can be deceptive. Wow, mankind is very gullible. He learned that. So Paul is teaching these truths now to his people. Number three, Satan corrupts our thinking through deceit. He corrupts our thinking. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Corrupted. Number four, the woman first fell in sin to Satan's deceit. The woman first fell in sin to Satan's deceit. Now, some of you might be thinking, as I was initially, then why does Adam get all the blame? Now, don't answer that yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if she was the first to fall, and if she really did sin, which I'm going to show you how I believe she did sin, it's found in 1 Timothy 2.14. It says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. The woman was in the transgression. The woman sinned. Why did she sin? Because she was deceived. She sinned. Letter B. The New Testament presents man as the originator of sin. So the woman was the first to fall. Man fell soon thereafter. So why, therefore, does the New Testament hold man responsible? Let's take some suppositions here. That is at least partially because of the woman's subjection to the position of her husband. God placed the woman under the man. Man's responsible. So what happens, at least it used to happen this way, when your child acts up at school, <laughs> what happens? The parents get called. If it's bad enough, the parents can get in trouble for what the child did. The parents, why? Because the parents responsible for the child. The parents were not keeping an eye on the child. The parents did not bring the kids home at night or whatever it is. The parents are responsible. Why? Because of this. Adam was responsible 
for this. Man had been given God's command to eat not of the tree. God came to Adam and said, Adam, you can eat all the trees except for the one. To Adam he said that, not to Eve. Whose responsibility, therefore, was it to make sure that Eve did not eat? Adam's. It's Adam's. One of the first things that he should have been doing was educating his wife on that tree. Now, I think she knew. I think he told her. But there's also something interesting coming up here. Man had been given this responsibility. Do not eat that tree. And that Eve gave also unto her husband with her, the Bible says. Eve gave also unto her husband with her suggests that Adam was there with her. So what it suggests, now I can't prove this, what it suggests Eve and the serpent are having this tete-a-tete. They're talking to each other. And then Eve, after the conversation, sees this tree. She walks over to the tree. And she partakes and eats. Wow, honey, here. Where is honey? Got to be pretty close to her. So it sounds to me like Adam was right there with her, possibly listening to what the devil was tempting her with. So he did nothing to stop it. That's what it sounds like. He did nothing to stop it. Why? Well, let's not forget that Adam is still enamored with his wife. I mean, this is the best thing since anything. <laughs> he doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to lose her. Why? What had God said would happen when you eat the tree? They would what? Yeah. Ooh. He just got her. If she eats the fruit, what's going to happen to her? She's going to die. So why did Adam eat the fruit? Because if the best thing in his life is going to die, he wants to go with her. These are all suppositions, obviously. As the head, Adam would be positionally responsible for sin in the earth. And I think that's how God holds it. Listen to this, Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 5, 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And then lastly, <clears throat> why is it that God did not have Mary and Joseph come together to create Jesus? Why is it that God did it through a virgin? and not a man and a woman. What's that? Yes. yes. Go on. I'm sorry? What about the original sin? You're right. I'm sorry? Who would have been under the curse? Okay. Why? Yes. But so is Mary. I mean, she was a sinner. 
still a sinner. She wasn't sinless. Contrary to some belief, she was still not sinless. So why not use Joseph? Through which man or woman does the sin pass through? The man, not the woman. Sin passes through the man, not the woman. You couldn't use Joseph because there was going to be no, no sin in Jesus. Perfect. Um, when, when we have children, the child is born in sin. Why? Because man got involved. Point is, God holds man responsible for it. Randy? Good point. That's right. That's right. That's good. Now we're going to stop here tonight because this is where we stopped this afternoon. We ran out of time as we're running out of time tonight. But uh, we'll pick us up, Lord willing, next week and we'll go from there. But I appreciate your kind attention. And uh, I'm enjoying the study and I'm enjoying your participation in this. So let's have a prayer and we'll thank God for it. Dear Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for your blessing. Thank you for meeting with us tonight. And once again, enlarging our minds, thinking about what you did at creation. And Lord, help us, I pray, to get better grounded in our study and our understanding of your truths. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.